0: Good morning from WKYT News, I'm Bill Bryant, and we welcome you to Kentucky Newsmakers. Later we'll have an inspiring story about a World War II veteran who's now 96 years old and still working in Lexington, that's later. But first, for decades, tons of rockets have been stored in central Kentucky, filled with deadly nerve agents like mustard and VX, the kinds of weapons intended to kill thousands in war. They're just on the outskirts of Richmond near EKU and contained in rockets that have been rusting and often leaking for years. The fact that they're there became widely known in the 1980s and the outcry began to get rid of them. How to do that would be a long saga. Over the next 30 years, different methods would be proposed. Protests were loud and many in the community feared a disaster. Locals would make trips to Frankfurt and Washington, and many acknowledged that a large-scale problem at the depot could cause regional chaos. Now, let's fast forward to this last week and a ribbon cutting for a plant designed to neutralize the agent and rid the area of the problem for good. We'll talk to a man who started out as a young activist on the issue who is now highly regarded for his determination in getting information and helping mobilize a region and a congressional delegation to act. Craig Williams with us shortly. But first, some of the comments from Wednesday's groundbreaking for the neutralization plant from U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell, who worked to keep it all on track.
1: So my job was to deliver the federal money. Now it was time for DOD to deliver results. Uh, bureaucracies, as it turns out, don't take micromanaging well. The back and forth came to a head when I introduced a provision prohibiting the building of any disposal facilities at Bluegrass until Aqua finished its work. President Bill Clinton up the ante. Upped the ante. He threatened to veto the entire bill. This was part of a defense bill. Veto the entire bill over my one provision. Well, we stood firm, looked the veto threat in the eye, and fortunately, President Clinton changed his mind. He agreed to fund testing for all six alternatives. That wouldn't be the last obstacle. Over the years, former Defense Secretary Bob Gates and I discussed the depots so frequently that he even made a point to mention in my and my badgering him about the disposal in his memoir. This is the Secretary of Defense. He wasn't happy about efforts to interfere with the Pentagon bureaucracy, but he got the message and we got results. Together we made our voices heard, built this state-of-the-art facility, and protected the families of this wonderful community. So my friends, we are blessed to live in a country that truly values freedom and individual expression. Our system is at its best when citizens and entire communities lead. And when Kentuckians rally to a cause, it makes the job of people like me a lot easier. All I have to do is listen to you and try to carry out what your will happens to be. So here's the good news. The longer I've had the privilege to be Kentucky's advocate in the Senate, the louder my megaphone has become. Back when I was a junior senator, I was lucky to get cabinet secretaries to return my calls. When I joined the Appropriations Committee, my prospects actually began to improve. <laughs> Folks are more keen on listening to you when you hold the purse strings. It's an amazing thing. Now, as majority leader, I'm able to bring national attention to local issues and deliver serious results. So in my current job, I get to speak regularly with cabinet secretaries and, President Trump and others. Uh, Just a few days ago, I had the acting Secretary of Defense on Capitol Hill to talk about a number of issues, including the requirement that the weapons stored right here be destroyed safely, securely, and finally, on schedule. Take, for example, the very first appropriation I worked on back in 1996. It set aside $40 million. It was an important amount of money, to be sure, but it was relatively minor in terms of the entire federal budget. Fast forward to last year's defense funding bill, ACWA received 880 million, from 40 million to 880 million, more than 20 times the original sum. So it's been my privilege to deliver these resources to support the work of around 1,200 employees and a local economic footprint totaling more than one billion dollars. We've never been in a better position to end this fight once and for all and in this fight we will and on our terms. So today is much more than a ribbon cutting it's getting one step closer to fulfilling the Army's promise to the people of Madison County and for me there's no better fight than one alongside all of you. It's exactly what people like me are elected to do. So I offer my sincere thanks to the operators, the technicians, maintenance staff, construction workers, and the many others whose stewardship of this dangerous stockpile has helped us avoid disaster. And I want to thank all of you for being here today. Whether you've been allies with Craig and me from the very beginning or you jumped in along the way, every one of you helped us get here. And of course, we're not over the finish line quite yet. And until these chemical weapons are disposed, you can be sure that Craig and I will continue making sure every I is dotted and every T is crossed. Then we'll keep working to build on Madison County's impressive economic growth and support this site and its highly skilled workforce. Together we can make Kentucky a safer place, not only for us and our children, but also for countless generations who will follow. Thank you for being here today. This is indeed a wonderful occasion. Thanks so much.
0: Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in Richmond earlier this week, as you see him there, greeting uh, some of the folks who were there and making reference to somebody named Craig Craig Williams who has been a catalyst in this long battle who uh, really got this thing started and uh, for many many years has uh, has fought this uh, to this day and uh, says that it is not over there'll be more to do Uh, Craig Williams uh, a longtime uh, environmental activist one who in 1984 you found out that nerve agent was there how'd that happen
2: Um, the army announced a, a meeting at the depot uh, and they invited the community to show up to talk about this, uh, the existence of these munitions and their plans to dispose of them. And many people, including myself, didn't even know these were there. Um, and so the short version is the Army sent somebody and said, you know, you have these chemical weapons. We can't tell you what they are, how much there uh, is there, and we're going to uh, incinerate them. Uh, here, do you have any questions? And so many people raised their hand and had significant questions, many of which were not answered uh, in in any detail. For example, what would come out of the smokestack when you burn this material? Uh, And so that was the uh, beginning of a movement that took place both in Richmond and Berea. And then uh actually spilled out into lexington and across the state to finally get our congressional delegation to pay attention
0: you were uh, in your mid-30s at the time i remember uh, covering some of that we broke. you those were in stories. your 20s yeah at the i time. was <laughs> <laughs> and uh you, you had a it seemed like about a what a six or eight month old kid on your hip i remember right? I, my so, son was eight <laughs> months old
2: and uh a reporter asked me why i was stirring up all this trouble Uh, And I pointed to my son and I said, this is the reason I'm uh, involved in this because I care about his health and well-being and that of the community.
0: So the Army and the the Pentagon and others did not want to say much at the time. They didn't want to give you much information. You kept digging. Uh, You uh, went to uh, tremendous efforts to to find out information about what was there and what was going to be done.
2: Correct, and uh, eventually they began to be a little more transparent about what the stockpile consisted of and so on and so forth, but they were rigid in their opposition to considering any alternative to incinerating this material. And so it wasn't a question so much of if we want to get rid of it, but how do you do it? Uh originally they gave us several options. One was we could ship it to two regional sites in the U.S. We could ship it all to one site in the U.S. Or we could incinerate it in our own backyard. But if you notice in those options, there's no option for how to go about it. It was incinerated here, incinerated there, incinerated everywhere. And once they made the decision that they were gonna build these incinerators at all eight sites in the U.S., including Kentucky, uh, that's when a lot of people felt the game was over. Uh, But actually, that's when it really just began. Well, you didn't want this to go in the
0: air. Uh, you uh, were fearful that if it were transported, there could be an accident. I remember that was a huge yep. uh, concern in the communities. The local authorities have passed an ordinance saying it can't come through our city limits right, in, right. In, in Richmond and Berea. I also remember that the the, the local leaders, we would call and say, what well, we hear from somebody Uh, that uh, (laughs) there may have been a leak or a problem at the depot, and and we would be uh, told, well, we don't know, and they didn't. And they eventually passed local ordinances requiring that they be notified. That's part of the saga, too.
2: Correct. Well, the overall transparency within the program and within the storage uh, operation has increased tremendously Mm -hmm. over the years. And that's the way it should have been at the beginning, and frankly, had it been that way in the beginning, I think we would have avoided a lot of controversy, saved a lot of time, and still achieved the environmental protection and public health uh, cautions that we now have as we begin uh, startup next week.
0: How hard was it for you to, uh, to continue this battle while raising your
2: family, uh, trying to make a living? Uh, I defer to my wife on <laughs> <laughs> I remember one occasion when I was uh, heading over to the Rush to visit the Russian uh, sites and my daughter was probably three and I explained to her that I was going away for a couple of weeks and she said well that's okay daddy you're gonna save the world and you know that was those kind of inspiring words are things that you carry with you your whole life now my wife was not quite as happy that I was going to Russia for a couple of weeks uh, but she was very supportive throughout the whole thing and it's just it's remarkable she's a real it's the power behind you know behind every man is a powerful woman well that's her for sure
0: again there were there were all those efforts to try to get information at one point when uh, Scotty Basler was the congressman for this district mm-hmm. uh, there were some things going on at some of the other facilities that you had questions about and you got his attention and he he sent a letter
2: we had a uh, struggled to try to get the army to supply us information on the number of agent releases that have that had occurred out the smokestack of these facilities and of course they wouldn't tell us anything about it Uh, congressman basler at the time uh, wrote a letter to the army i forget exactly who it was addressed to and he got a response that identified fourteen actual live agent detections out the smokestack of these incinerators Well, at that point, our case was made that putting one of these open-ended facilities in a mile from middle school and a couple of miles from EKU and just a few miles from downtown Richmond was, was fundamentally sound, that it was inappropriate and unacceptable to have a technology that could possibly emit some of the most dangerous chemicals on the planet into a middle school of 600 kids, well, it became very clear that we were on the right side of the issue, and from then on, uh, they would not respond to even senators or congressmen's requests for actual uh, proof of agent releases. They they circled the wagons and, and closed the door on that. Uh, but based on that information, I think it's safe to assume and speculate that there were many additional agent releases that occurred at these incinerators, and our position, I believe, was well-founded based on that information.
0: A series of political leaders, including uh, Senator McConnell, and certainly uh, various governors and members of Congress from here uh, have have all kept the pressure on all these years, huh?
2: The original person in D.C. that stepped up was Congressman Larry Hopkins. And he um, came to Richmond shortly after he held the first uh, House Armed Services uh, Investigative Committee hearing outside of D.C., was held in Richmond at EKU. And he decided that we were right. And he started the charge uh, from the political side of things. And since then, uh, with some exceptions, Uh, most of the congressional delegation has been on our side and has been pushing uh, for alternatives. It was Senator McConnell and Senator Ford at the time who really got the ball rolling and then Senator McConnell uh, picked up the flag and got the funding to really uh, look into alternatives. The Army had looked theoretically at alternatives many times and they'd always say, well, that's all well and good but it won't work. This time they were directed by Congress to identify and demonstrate, which was the difference, at least two alternatives. They found six. They tried to not test a bunch of them. Senator McConnell weighed in and said, you're going to test them all. And, and that's when Bill Clinton signed the bill.
0: Did it take some time for science to catch up and, and, and arrive at this, uh, at this way to get this done that is now getting ready to get started?
2: Um, in on, on some parts of the technology that's here in kentucky the answer is yes like the secondary treatment which is called supercritical water oxidation that technology was in its infancy but it doesn't treat chemical agent it treats the byproduct of the neutralization process the neutralization process had been used for years uh... however the um complications with it that the army articulated were founded to be somewhat exaggerated. Uh, For example, reformation of the agent after neutralization, which the squo of the supercritical water oxidation addresses that problem. That's why we have a two-step process here in uh, kentucky to deal with the f- the agent itself and then to process the byproduct so there's no chance of reformation or escape
0: let me take a quick break we're going to come back we're talking with craig williams a historic figure really in the <laughs> battle over the nerve agent over at the bluegrass army depot that is finally going to start to be neutralized and out of here uh, starting in june we are back on kentucky newsmakers in a moment welcome back to kentucky newsmakers here on wkyt we're glad you're here this past week it was announced that they're really ready to go now with the neutralization of the chemical weapons stored at the bluegrass army depot over near richmond and there are a lot of those and if there had been craig williams any kind of a, a problem over the years this would have been would have had a regional impact if there had been a, a, a massive event at the depot
2: well technically that's possible, but the, there are so many factors that would have to be in place in order for a major disaster to occur. It would have to be a certain type of agent. It would have to be a certain concentration. You'd have to have certain meteorological conditions that would carry the materials to a certain location that was heavily populated. All those things could happen, and that's why the Chemical Stockpile Emergency Preparedness Program has been put in place, or CSEP, which monitors air patterns and monitors everything around the depot 24 hours a day seven days a week there have been minor leaks that have been contained inside the igloo because they monitor these things all the time to make sure nothing major happens so you know there's always the chance that a tornado is going to hit your house but the odds are de minimis and even if it does you have an uh, an emergency preparedness response that you're able to implement during those sorts of times. And that's the same situation we're in here.
0: As this neutralization process begins, and there's been a lot of celebration to, to get <laughs> uh, you know, this uh, going at this point, uh, do you still have some ongoing concerns? I mean, do you, uh, you, this, uh, this has taken
2: a lot of engineering to get to this point. Right. I mean, could there still be problems? Well, I think there are, I have concerns, well, not really concerns, I'm aware of the fact that this is a very complicated facility, there are a lot of moving parts, Uh, I anticipate that there will be slowdowns and possibly stoppages because of some technical problems. I'm aware of that, but I'm not concerned in the sense that those problems would lead to any kind of agent release or any kind of negative impact on the community or the region or the environment there are two different things you have to consider when you think in terms of whether or not there's risk there's risk from a machine not functioning correctly for some reason or another and the plant has to shut down and fix that problem that's one risk those risks I anticipate will occur they'll be minor because they've been systematizing this thing for months and months and it's been going very well I might say Um, and then the other risk is whether or not any kind of slowdown or malfunction in, inside the facility would cause a release of the agent, and that I don't have any concern about at all. Now, the problem with incineration, to go back to that, is you feed this material into that incinerator, and if something goes wrong, it goes out the other side. You can't you can't stop it. This is a very closed loop process where you put it the material in a container and you add neutralant and you stir it around and when it reaches a certain destruction level then you move it to the holding tank and then you move it to the neutral uh, to the scow unit the secondary treatment so there's no real route for it to get out
0: you have no concern that there will be uh, any kind of byproduct uh, uh, that comes from I mean the part of the the engineering and the science to get to this point has been to be sure that uh, it would be uh, contaminant free uh, once this uh, is done right? I have
2: to tell you um My confidence in the scientific group and the engineering group that has been working on this for years is extremely high. Um, These people are experts in their field. There are senior scientists from many subcontracting agencies, like Patel National Laboratories, who I have the utmost confidence in their capability, both on the scientific side and on the environmental protection side. Uh, And so I'm very confident about it. But again, it's not going to start off and run perfectly from the beginning, but we feel that it's going to do fine. Now, I I have to point out, the mustard agents and some of the drained rockets are going to be processed in a thing called the static detonation chamber and not neutralized. The reason for that in the mustard case is the agent has gelled to a point where you can't drain it out. So if you can't drain it out, you can't put it in a vat to neutralize it. So the static detonation chamber is a high temperature, negative oxygen environment within which the munition is dropped and it, it, it deflagrates, it melts or explodes, and then in that, in that environment, it, the agent is destroyed.
0: When does your job as a watchdog of this project end?
2: Um, I anticipate to 2023, which is the date they're shooting for. Uh, then after that, there's gonna be a couple of years of closure uh, that take about two years to decontaminate and raise any of the facility that has been exposed to agent. The rest of the infrastructure will stay there. Uh, I'll be on the job until closure is finished. And we're working right now very diligently on how do we avoid losing the 1700 workers that will be there at peak operations and how do we use some of the infrastructure that's left after the project A
0: few seconds left 35 years if you <laughs> had to do it all over again would you
2: absolutely I, I believe in what we've done I'm passionate about it uh, and I have absolutely no regrets uh, maybe a few financial regrets, because activists are usually overworked and underpaid. But other than that, I, I have no regrets about what we've done as a community. And I'm just kind of the spokesperson and a tool that the community used to get what they wanted done.
0: Greg Williams, thanks for coming.
2: Thanks, Appreciate, Bill. It. Appreciate We're you.
0: We're coming back with a very special story about a 96-year-old Central Kentuckian who fought in World War II. That story in a moment. Welcome back to Kentucky Newsmakers on Monday Camp Nelson National Cemetery held its annual Memorial Day program and this year it honored the men and women who served in World War II. This December will mark the 75th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge in the winter of 1944. And this year's keynote speaker was a 96 year old Central Kentuckian who remembers every second of that cold and deadly portion of the war. Our Amber Philpot has that compelling story.
3: All right. He might be a little slower in pace, but his workload certainly doesn't reflect it. Every day, just like clockwork, Captain Walter Cox shows up to the office. I came
4: out of retirement.
3: I tried retirement and played golf every day, and I didn't like it, and so I decided to go back to work. At 96 years young, he's the man to talk to about a trust or a will. An attorney for most of his career, he opened his own practice, focusing on this line of work in 2004. He says it keeps him young. Well, my advice to everybody is to keep working, and
4: I think that's what's kept me alive. You've got to exercise your brain as well as your
3: body. Being shot. Cox was Every the recent day. keynote speaker for Memorial, Memorial Day at it's Camp Nelson National Cemetery. If you ask him about the honor, his sense of humor is evident.
4: I think that uh, probably the oldest one they knew about that could still get up and stand up and speak.
3: It's been more than seven decades since Cox was called into duty. A UK ROTC student, he got the call in April of 1943 to head to basic training. That next year, he was sent with the 70th Infantry arriving in France ahead of one of the greatest battles of World War II.
4: We were in route in our 48's when the Battle of the Boats started, and it started further north. So it was going on while we were in route up to Strasbourg.
3: He and his men arrived Christmas Day 1944. He recalls what he told his men as if it were yesterday.
4: Oh, I, I believe that uh, the Lord's going to take care of us. So I told my men, I have 40 men, I was a t- l- platoon leader, and uh, on Christmas Day I took them all in church there, a little Catholic church in the town of Bushwiler, France, and I told them all that their job was to protect themselves as well as kill all the Germans.
3: Cox and his men fought in some of the most brutal conditions. The cold and snow, just another enemy in itself.
4: Shoes were the main things. Your feet would freeze if you didn't take off your shoes, change your socks. Your buddy, you always have a buddy with you, and he massages your feet, get the feeling back in them, put on the warm socks.
3: In January, Cox and his men succeeded in stopping the Germans and freed several prisoners. At 22 years old, he and his men earned a battalion citation from the president. A lot of
4: people died and a lot of people, uh, I was lucky. I, like I write my book, I, I, no doubt I love my angel because I know I was protected by an angel.
3: Cox went on to attain the rank of captain, serve in the JAG Corps, and eventually return home to the Bluegrass to start a family and his career outside the military. He has written his life story down in this book, I Love My Angel, a way to preserve the memories of his 96 years. There aren't many left of his generation, so maybe it's why he's still hard at work, a way to honor those that didn't get the chance to be here with him.
4: It's a great honor, and uh, given my age and given my health, the Lord has blessed me, and I thank Him for it.
0: And that report from our Amber Philpott. We want to thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Kentucky Newsmakers. A reminder, we'll see you bright and early this week on WKYT This Morning. We start at 430, so we're up when you're up. You make it a good week ahead.